Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under. This is the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Steve Fisher back with you once again and with me as always is my co-host and friend Grant McCarran. How are you, mate? Not too foul, mate. How are you doing? Well, we've survived a uh, sweltering day down here in Melbourne. It's been uh, really quite warm. I I fear summer is on the way. Yeah, they're talking about, well, today was 36 degrees Celsius and they're talking about uh, 40 plus, possibly getting to 50, close to 50 if not 50 itself down here in Melbourne close to the water that's just nuts 50 good lord I must yeah I'm gonna move to Tasmania if that happens well I tell you what I was driving today um had to go to a number of uh, appointments around the city and my aircon has packed it in in the RX-7 so I'm driving with the AWD method which is all windows down and at times I tell you what I really wanted to pop the hatch and have the trunk open as well to get the air really flowing through oh, you could do that in your car too oh indeed well folks tonight is a bit of a hybrid episode we've uh, tried to have a, a few in-profile shows and uh, interspersed between our usual news and comment shows, but this one's a bit of a, a bit of a chat, a bit of a get-to-know-you, and it's also a little bit educational. And uh, of course, we're talking to uh, Ben Ippolito and Jeremy Peck, and they're both air traffic controllers that are working at the Air Traffic Control Centre here in Melbourne, and uh, they've been very generous to uh, offer us oh, an hour or so of their time and let us know about uh, what it's like to be an air traffic controller, what it's all about. They also uh, have a bit of a discussion about how they got into the the training system, what the selection process is like, and that's actually quite relevant, Grant, because I notice on the Air Services website that they're recruiting at the moment. So yep. if any of you out there are aspiring to be air traffic controllers, then you really need to give this one a bit of a listen. And uh, yeah, it's quite an interesting discussion. And we actually end up at the end talking about the A380. So um, we actually recorded this one a week or two back, and we've been saving it for now. So we should probably get into it pretty shortly. Yeah, I think so. Uh, just before we get stuck into it, I'd just also like to say thanks to Air Services for allowing Ben and Jeremy to uh, have a chat with us. Uh, the guys did actually check this with their uh, management and got permission to have a chat. So very much appreciate that. Yep, that's excellent. And uh, we'll thank them in advance for the the tour that I'm sure they'd love to give us of the air traffic control facility oh, here in Melbourne. Indeed, some point. indeed, hanging out for that one, guys. Yeah, Hello. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, enough of that silliness, folks. Uh, sit back and relax, and uh, really, yeah, enjoy this. It's a really fascinating discussion. So let's get into it. Definitely. Okay, well, we're here this week with Ben and Jeremy. G'day, guys. G'day. G'day. Uh, ben and Jeremy are both uh, air traffic controllers here in Australia, and uh, they've been kind enough to give us some time tonight to have a bit of a chat about how they uh, became air traffic controllers and the application process and the training process and what it's all about. So, Grant, why don't we lead off with some pointed questions? Well, I was going to lead off with a very quick piece of background, actually, which is, uh, guys, just to let you know, both uh, Steve and I are rejected controllers. Yeah, so that'll be the end of that interview. (laughs) (laughs) Condolences. Yeah, I got got told never come back. But anyhow, that was... was, was, (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. Moving right along. That was was to do with my mental Interesting that, actually, because I got told no the first time anyway, so it took me two days to get in. Yeah, but at least, at least they just said, I'll oh, come back later when you're able to concentrate, mate. They didn't say, uh, dude, you're going to get bored being an air traffic controller. Don't come back. <laughs> True. Anyway, uh, so uh, what about uh, what about Ben? We lead off with you and you can uh, tell us a bit of your background and um, how you came into the world of uh, air traffic control. Okay. So the first thing first, I'm going to have to confess off the bat that I am a uh, self-confessed aeroplane geek. Uh, I can vouch for that. That that was my start of it. And I initially, actually, out of high school, started training to be a pilot uh, 
went through, got my commercial pilot's license and instrument rating and everything, and was on the verge of actually getting a twin job when uh, I actually heard back from the application process, which is very long and uh, process to get in to the interview and actually got my interview and then actually got through that and decided, had to make a big decision of which side of the screen I was going to be sitting on and decided for this and haven't looked back since. Actually, it was it actually suits me better than flying for professionally, but that's just for me. Right, okay. What about you, Jeremy? Uh, well, I basically got into flying back in school when I was in about year 10. Um, I had a few friends that were flying down at the Launceston Aero Club, so I thought that sounds like fun. Got the parents to pay for a uh, couple of lessons and sort of got into the flying that way. Um, I sort of gave it away for various reasons, mainly financial reasons and because I had to study for exams. <laughs> yeah. I went to uni, went overseas, came back and I had a degree and I wasn't really enjoying it and I wanted to get back into flying but one of my mates actually suggested that I give it a go and I thought, yeah, it sounds like a bit of fun. So I applied and got through and now I'm here. So yeah. not as interesting as Ben's story. Uh, did you go through to commercial with your license? You didn't, did you? No, no, no I, only, I only had like a handful of lessons, like literally. I got up to my solo and ran. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty common uh, story. That's that's similar to mine, you know, having to give the, the flying game away for financial reasons. It's it's a very common thread in this country for our overseas listeners, particularly in the States where it's pretty cheap to fly by comparison to anywhere else. Yeah, it's funny. My parents would let me fly, but they wouldn't let me drive the car and get some hours up on that. It was quite ironic. Yeah. Probably somebody else covering the insurance on you, mate. That's right. <laughs> so, now, did you guys both go through the same training course at the same time or different times? Same course, Ab initio course 25. Okay. Just before we get on to the course, though, how about we talk about the uh, going? what it's like going through the, uh, the selection exams because I think all four of us can talk on that one, uh, unless it was a long time ago for you, Steve, was it? Uh, it was probably 10 years ago, but my brain is still hurting from it if I think about it long enough. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty much like that. So do you guys want to talk about your memories of going through the uh, selection criteria? Uh, sure. Well, the first step, it's pro- it might have changed since then, but um, is an online application that you fill out and you basically get emailed a, if you meet certain criteria, you know, age, etc. you have to do it basically an online test. I think it's an IQ test or something to that nature. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's 30, 40 minutes. And if you pass that, then you move on to the full day of testing. And that's a long day of doing five or six tests, looking at a computer with DOS running applications with balls bouncing off things and <laughs> things distracting you. And <laughs> Do you remember yeah. it? Grant, Grant, Grant's laughing, so, so he's done that before. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, remarkably gotta... similar to the application process for the uh, train driving course, actually. Did you do things like mechanical reasoning and all that sort of stuff? The first section was mental arithmetic, basic, yeah. basic um, mental maths. But while you were doing that, there was a tape playing in the background. And every now and then it would say, stop writing, put your pens down. And then it would say something like, if a warship is bigger than a, a, a Cessna 172, then underline the A on this page. And it was all this sort of stuff that had to make you think sort of four or five steps ahead. And you had to like score a certain mark on both of those tests. So they were done simultaneously. And yep. then the next one was the sort test, was it, Ben? The one with, that was, that was quite hard, that one. Lots of codes and yeah, stuff running across the screen. The, the next test is... Pretty much it's looking at how 
sort of fast you can process information and mm. it's putting up shapes and things like that and you've got to say whether they're the same or different or how you're going to to sort them out like you know you've got a button for it you push if it's a triangle or a circle mm. and yeah. and things like that and, and there'd be lots changes. of rules that change as well, wouldn't there? Like, yeah. if it's a green triangle, it means it's a, it's a blue dot and all this stuff. Yeah, unless unless it was a triangle with a blue dot, in which case you press three, but if it was a triangle with a red dot, you press two, unless, of course, it was a day with a T in it. Yeah, it was those kind of things. <laughs> and and I, rem- I remember, because you have to use, like, F1 through to F4, and at one stage I looked down and realised my fingers weren't where I thought thought they were supposed to Oops. be. So I was, like, going, mm, but I thought, oh, I still got through, so I did. I probably got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you're a qualified controller, that sort of stuff never happens now, surely, just to reassure the listeners, you know. Yeah, yeah, the finger never The next test was, oh, that was the ball one. Yeah, so anyone who's ever gone through air traffic control testing is going, yes, yes, I've, I've done that one. And yeah. even for our, uh, for the listeners overseas in the uh, US, I believe we've uh, borrowed these tests from the FAA, a couple of them. So if you're an FAA controller, you've probably done the same ones. That one's classic with the ball going across and then suddenly the screen blanks or you've got, yeah. like, you, you go to a whole separate test. The ball's travelling across the screen. Yeah. You've got to say when you think it's going to hit the line and then you're in doing another, suddenly the, the screen blanks and you're doing a completely different test and you're trying to get as many pattern matches as you can and then you go pattern match, pattern match, pattern match, pattern match. oh, hit that key and there you are, it comes back to where the ball is relative to the line and you've got yeah, to try right. and get it right yeah. on the line. Yeah, and you um, you get plenty of practice with all the tests, but um, I found that I got a couple right on the line when I was actually doing the test, so I was pretty happy with that. But yeah, it was just um, it's more of it's actually a square. It's not a ball because it's on it like a it's a floppy disk computer game, so it can't actually be a shape of a ball, but it's like a square, and it disappears, yeah. disappears halfway through. So that one was fun though. After that, there's just the simulation game, which is the one that everyone on the testing day thinks is the one that actually makes the most sense because it actually involves very basic version of air traffic control. Man, I could have played that uh, all day. <laughs> you could have reprogrammed it, Grant. <laughs> that's, that's the one that everybody sort of gets the, the day and goes, well, hang on a second, shouldn't we have been doing that the whole day? Yeah. And it, and it was pretty good because it had, it had all the aircraft all over the screen and there were four, four altitudes, four speeds, and there was like northeast, southwest. So the aircraft was landing and had, you had to have it at the lowest altitude at the lowest speed. And if it was overflying, you had to get it pointing up through each of the, like, the northeast, southwest at the highest level at the highest speed. So it sort of actually did test pretty similar principles to what gets done in real life. That was what naffed me off because I aced that. I had a blast. I could have played that all damn day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, you know, I used to be able to get to the top level of Kennedy approach on my Commodore 64 back in the 80s, so I maybe <laughs> had a good chance at that too. <laughs> Legend. <laughs> I wish I could find that game somewhere now. I, I, if anybody knows, if they could send an email to our email address, playingcrazynunder at gmail.com, I'd love to know if there's a modern-day version of Kennedy Approach. What a great game. Yeah, there's a game. I've, I need to go and find it later when we have a break because it's, uh, it's a Java game that you can run on your web browser and you are, you could take whichever airport you want and there's a number of airports, including um, Sydney. You can jump on and uh, it will start throwing traffic at you and all that kind of stuff. I was playing it back, God, it would have been January. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. There's actually a couple of quite quite complex uh, US-based air traffic control simulators around. I don't know if you've seen them, guys, but you're basically looking at the screen, at the at the screen as a controller would see it, and it looks quite realistic 
to me. Uh, and uh, but the the controls I find a bit cumbersome when you would normally be talking to a uh, to an aircraft. Basically, you got to drag the you know click here and press this button to make it say this. And yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've looked at a couple of them, but they actually do seem quite complex when you've got to type in instructions it's easier to, to say them to the aircraft yeah but that's the one drawback is that yeah when you've actually got to type what you're trying to say and you know like most of the population i can't type as fast as i can speak so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh funny thing is that guys have actually got that uh there's an app for the iphone which is an air traffic control thing yeah and i've, I've seen that actually think quite quite a few guys at work actually played that in the rec room and it's Kind of ironic that they're taking a break from controlling traffic and they're controlling traffic in their break. <laughs> it's kind of switch yeah. off. And let me guess, they're the, they're the guys who hop on to uh, Vatsim, the, uh, the <laughs> that, where, that, where they're controlling one. all the guys. Mm. So, yeah, that, sorry, that is that is the um, the benefit of actually with Vatsim, you can actually talk to real people, so you, you alleviate the keyboard part of it. So if we can talk about uh, you've made it through the interview process and um, I guess the training centre, is that still down in Hobart? I think it used to be in Hobart, wasn't it? It used, it used to be in Launceston. Right. And now, now now it's done out of Melbourne, out of Melbourne Centre on the same complex, actually under the, the tower itself. Okay. I, I can't remember how long it's been there. It's um, all the controllers that are on my group. It was in uh, Tasmania, but they've been doing the job longer than I've been around, so I'm not sure when it moved, but it was, it was only recent in the last... Five or ten years it moved to Melbourne. Maybe if you can describe the the training course and you know how long it is and what's involved. Okay, yeah, it, roughly ten months, give or take. We were told when we started it would be more likely more than ten months, but it was pretty close it's when we finished. Ten months and actual got, actual in the classroom. Yeah. Um, was it, Jeremy? It ends up being roughly almost twelve. Yeah. Because the, the, the academy's not part of the air traffic control unit it's more part of the corporate side so they get all the once you take into account public holidays christmas easter things like that you generally there for you know 11 or 12 months because once you take the holidays out of it yeah and you, and you walk in there and we all met in the cafeteria just at the center and there were 12 in our course and they led us over to the college showed us around and showed us to our classroom and we walked in the room and there's just a stack of books and folders on everyone's desk with a little a name card for uh, everyone. And we just looked at all these books and went, oh, what's all this? And Ben probably recognised AIP sitting there, but that was about it. And I was just like, oh, God, what's going to happen here? And we had a test in our, on our third day. So <laughs> that was good fun. Hello and welcome to hell. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Because we, we were mailed out a, a pack and it, it was, uh, what was what's, what is it? Basic aeronautical knowledge, Ben, that pilot yeah, sort of starting that- point. There's, there's a lot of BAK things that they they do as a pre-reading thing now. Okay. Um, just, to, just to try and bring the trainees up to speed to a certain amount, a certain level of you know, things that can be home-studied before they actually get to the course itself. Mm, just, to, like just, just to reduce the amount of, of stuff that you have to try and cover in the first week, which yeah, is like essentially I, like the basic. Ben, ben was lucky, and we had we had another pilot, and I had I sort of knew what ailerons did, but everyone else really didn't have a background. So it, was a, it, it would have been quite daunting for a lot of people, but everyone gets up to speed fairly quickly. Um, and I think they arrange it so that every course has at least one or two pilots so that they can sort of help and mentor the other students to a certain degree. So... We That's get up handy. to speed on all the basic stuff. 
So I find that a really positive thing and something I'd not even thought of, but they actually want you to understand basic principles of flight, how an aircraft works, uh, before you actually get into the business of learning how to push them around the sky. That's right. We, we learn all yeah, about aircraft before separation standards. Oh, that's interesting. A lot of people that come into it, very few are actually from aviation sort of backgrounds. We've had people on our course that, um, you know, we had podiatry and dodgers and, uh, you know, Tango people dance. from uni and things, and all sorts of backgrounds. As far as, you know, their only knowledge of aviation is that, uh, you know, they get their ticket, they get their boarding call and they the plane and you know 32a is a window seat and that's about yeah probably the extent of it before they actually start <laughs> yeah. their um their actual career so a lot of it that they're trying to alleviate with uh, the bak part of it the, pr- the course pre-reading now is is just sort of bring them up on the basics of of aviation before you you jump into it so when you talk okay. about having an exam three days in is, is that basically what your first exam is covering principles of flight that sort of thing yeah, it was, the, it was the basic aeronautical knowledge. I think it was just questions um, out of the book and everyone was really worried that they were going to fail the first uh, test and be out of the course, but we were told it was the one test that you're allowed to fail. So there's <laughs> shame in it, of course. <laughs> so you're moving on from there and I guess the next part would be, uh, you said something about separation or do you have to learn? Uh, well, rules and uh, the, first, the first six weeks are um, pretty much all theory. Um, so you do all the basic aeronautical knowledge you learn. Um, com, so you learn your basic phraseology, um, the phonetic alphabet, how to say numbers, you know, thousands in metres and whatnot. And um, and then they let us do a, a HMI course, which is stands for Human Machine Interface, which is learning how to actually drive the, the, the simulator or the, um, the system. And uh, once we get a handle on that, we have a quick test to see that we know how to click on an aircraft and sort of manipulate the system and um, then we start the first module, which is DTI, which is Class G, Directed Traffic Information. And, and while, you're, while you're doing, and sort of from then on, you do you do um, theory and prac. And towards the end of the course, you're doing mainly theory. So you're doing six hours of sim a day and, you know, maybe two hours of theory and that's about it. So it's sort of, it sort of gets less theory and more prac as you go through. But obviously at the start, there's a lot of information. And like I think separation standards is actually one of the last theory subjects that we that we do, and that doesn't sort of come until the, to the end of the DTI module, which is, I think it's what two months, Ben? Is it? Yeah, it's about eight weeks for that for that particular part. And I mean, the, the good part sort of of Class G is you don't have to actually worry about keeping the aeroplanes apart. That if they get within certain parameters, you just tell them about each other. And being Class G, airspace, they're supposed to you know talk to each other or look out the window and actually not run into each other. See and avoid at its best. That's right. Well, if you if you the IFR pilots, which is the ones we're giving traffic to and from, most of the time is uh, you know they'll they'll just talk to each other and actually arrange what they're going to do and yeah. uh, keep themselves apart. But there are limitations to the simulator as far as what it can do, because obviously it's not the you know in the real world you can have pilots trying to talk over the top of each other and and things like that, and it's. And at that point of it, it's obviously a lot slower, too, because you know you're only just starting. And that's your first thing. So mm. the, and it's, it's and we actually learn how to drive the um, sim. So like all the students are actually flipping or you know TGIing for each other. So it's it's basically one controller and one pilot playing all the roles. So obviously the pilots can't talk over each other because it's the same person. So in that <laughs> that regard, it's sort of more control. Well, you, you can't gotta, have more than one thing going at once. I mean, as 
because you've only got one person on the other end and they're everything that the person next to you isn't as far as you, you do two sectors side by side. So there's a console next to you as well, but everything that the person next to you isn't as far as other sectors and aeroplanes is one person. So obviously that limits how much they can do at once. And I mean, yeah, as an example, in the real world, the other day I had an aeroplane talking to me and I had about four lines open up at the same time. <laughs> No, I was only talking to the pilot at that point, but it was, there was a lot of bings coming out of my intercom because a lot of people <laughs> want to try and talk to me for various different reasons. Right. Has to be popular. It's not that popular uh, when you're trying to <laughs> listen, listen to four different people try to say four different <laughs> things at the same time. No, you can understand why in the training it's it's one, you know, they're, they're limiting the number of things that hit you because you, it's, it's like yeah. anything when you're first picking it up. The more variables you have, the slower it is. It's like when you first learn to fly, it takes a long time for you to get all the bits. Then suddenly once you've got those bits together, you can start focusing on the next level. And we, we were just trying to learn how to, how to, you know, interact with the aircraft as far as phraseology and remember, oh, that's how you put the level in. Oh, we've got to coordinate and speak to the next step, just going through the motions of actually doing the job. And we're obviously very, very slow at the start. So we couldn't handle a great deal. So <laughs> it got us up to speed though. I was just going to say, what was what was the next thing that you came through? You, there's an exam for DTI. So we got to a certain level and we had to pass a milestone, they call them. And yeah. that um, that wasn't too bad. I think we got everyone through, oh, except two, but they got through on the uh, the second attempt. Um, and then the next one is where you start doing the real controlling, which is procedural control, non-radar, you know, high-level stuff, talking to jets and stuff. So, And that did the hardest module out of all of them. So, And that one goes for four months or so. That, that was pretty far on. Uh, yeah, that one, that one does go for a long time because you, you start learning your, your separation standards. And the, um, the main problem with procedural control is, of course, you, you can't see the aeroplane, so you're taking the pilot's word for where he is. Yeah. And... Consequently, the, the separation standards we're allowed to use are a heck of a lot bigger than they normally are. Radar control, for the most part anyway, is uh, on route is five, five miles apart and a thousand feet is, is our two separation standards. You've either got to have one or the other. The problem comes, of course, when you can't see them. You can't keep them five miles apart because with uh, the error tolerances and things that you've got to have as far as on the time and or whatever standard you're using, yep. there's, there's some tolerances. So you, you can't run them right next to each other. I mean, it goes and it, domestically in Australia it goes anything from 10 minutes apart if you're running them behind each other but we, if you've got the right equipment you can run them a lot closer you can run them right up to 20 DME apart if, you, if you've got a DME station that's in the right place so yeah, you're so, you're separating based on on estimates. So they're obviously pilots aren't going to get their their exact estimates right. So they build in you know the 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So they're quite large standards. So and I remember at the start of the module, there's an aircraft comes on and I request climb to flight level 290, and I'm thinking, well, I don't know if I can give that to him. There's just so much to consider at the start. There's a lot of lot of thinking involved in working out because you've got to prove, okay, he's not going to hit him. He's not going to hit him. He's not going to hit him. There's just so much consideration and. The ones that request levels are always uh, in conflict with a lot of different people because it's a sim, so... They want to throw everything they can at you? Yeah, they do, yeah. <laughs> so four months is a pretty long time to study. I mean, were you guys uh, Monday to Friday and Saturday, Sunday off, or were you starting to get into shift work already during your training? No, it was uh, Monday through Friday. I think I think it was 7.30 to 3.30, so they were pretty good, um, pretty good hours. Because at Melbourne, there's, there's the, Qantas, the Qantas hangars near the end, and at 7 o'clock, they're all starting, so... Sometimes it can be difficult getting past all of them. And then you've got the plane spotters that I'm sure some of the listeners are familiar with, the plane spotting area at the end of the runway. Sometimes they're in the way and they're they're sort of 
driving 20 kilometres an hour down an 80 kilometre road and you just, you know, you just want to overtake them and toot them and get off the road. <laughs> uh, I, I can assure you, as a plane spotter, I never did 20k down that road. I was always trying to get to the plane spotter's place as fast as I could. About 100. So, <laughs> yeah, I oh, made it was hard to go less than 120 down that road. But, uh, <clears throat> yes, anyhow. And then, and then some people stray and they get towards um, the air services compound and it says... Uh, end of public road, do not enter. And then you see people just turn and then I go, okay, they turn left off the road and we've got to do a U-turn and go back up to the plane spotted area. That's as good as it gets. Yeah, I, I, w- I always get worried when I see somebody in that, that little part, sort of when you drive past the observation area and down the hill there and if they start slowing down there, you've got to be careful because you just don't know where they're going to go when they work out <laughs> there's no road left. Well, they are, of course, the rank amateur plane spotters. Everybody knows that if you go back <laughs> off that road, down through the valley and up the other side to the dirt road behind the tower, wonderful plane spotting area there. <laughs> uh, if they're running that 2-7 departures. Yeah, you're right at the, yeah. uh, right at the th- you can get right up at the threshold there. It's great. Allegedly. So you well, ben, ben and I actually did Famil in uh, Melbourne Tower during the, the, the college, and that, that was a lot of fun. Actually, so we'll probably we could see down onto the plane spot, sort of looking out. And I don't think it's the the best view along there, but certainly in the tower you get a, a good view of all the arrivals and departures. And I think at the time the A380 was there, so it was good fun. Yeah, the actual observation area there on the road out to the control tower, it's um, you would never go there. That's you really can't get a good look at anything from there. Well, back back on the uh, the famous four months of 7:30 to 3:30. <laughs> yeah. So you, you you had so that was Monday to Friday, 7:30 to 3:30, and. How much study? So, so you were pretty intense during that. Would they expect yeah. you to hang around and do study groups there, or did you have to organise study groups? You, you go home, and there's there's always something to do. As yeah. far as I mean, there's probably as as I said before, there's there's only two separation standards in the radar environment, and there's there's only one of them that's actually applicable in procedural airspace, which is a thousand feet, and the rest of them there is about seventy odd pages of, <laughs> and and you've and you've got to know the conditions and the the why and the how of of you know most of them yeah so so that you've got a uh, a standard and you can say well yes you know i've got a standard because of this and this and this and i've done my distance checks in a certain period of time and, and all that sort of thing did any of you help each other by you know throwing questions and answers at each other like you might do in a study environment or oh, was yeah, it that, just that was what the um the ping pong table was for that's where we could sort of play ping pong and <laughs> the winner stays on and we'd ask questions to each other it was a lot of fun that's unfortunately awesome. they got rid of the table so <laughs> Uh, there's a there's a lot of that as far as you know in in your spare time, if if you know, you happen to have a, a spare spare time because there's you know nothing programmed for that particular slot because obviously there's four courses when we were there and there's there's more now so there's obviously yeah. so many people that can fit in the sim at one point in time and so you you do get to the point later on where you you're sort of starting and as you get towards exams you you tend to sort of just all. Yeah, anytime you're congregated with people in the same <laughs> course, and eventually the conversation turns to, well, you know, we'll just fire questions at each other and, and yeah. see if we can come up with the answers. And and the pass mark for the theory was um, 70%. So, you know, so in theory, if you get through and only know 70% of it, but generally speaking, most people would score, you know, 90 or above, the sort of know the stuff fairly well. But the theory, I mean, I think the theory, we had about 20 or 30 theory exams, didn't we, Ben? There were a lot of, a lot of, a lot of exams so and in one week we had three so that was that was towards the end of our six weeks of hell which is what we called it at the start of the course <laughs> yeah most people are familiar with a jet you know the normal classroom size whiteboard and we had all our exams written down one side of it and it went from top to bottom by the Correct. end of it and that that wasn't including the simulation exams so wow there, there's a lot of exams in there 
And what is the standard? Yeah, is it uh, fail one, fail a lot, or is there like three strikes and you're out, that sort of thing? Or how do they... I think it, I think it was pretty much a three strikes and you're out sort of rule. Yeah, so yeah. everyone was chasing their tail. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. you got two, two theory subs and two sim subs, I think. Okay. Over the yeah. whole thing. And yeah. use so, them up and you're stuffed. Well, pretty, that's yeah. the theory. Yeah, okay. if you use if you use them both up, then you you're really on the back foot of trying to prove why you you've got a fail the course yeah. sort of thing. Any, any um, uh, what was the washout rate? You know, you started with twelve. You said in your class, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we started with twelve. There's three big milestones, which is your three simulation exams. So one for class G. The next one is procedural separation, and then the last one is radar control, airspace, and as well and I believe they've now got an ex- another one an additional one that we didn't have to do at the time but mm. they're, um, they've got a module at the end called combined operations which is closer to the real world as far as you don't normally do just one sector and, and one type of service it's more of a mix of a different you know you, you might be doing class G and you know and a bit of class E or a bit of you know everything or You've got a mix of airspaces and a mix of services that you're providing to the aircraft in those airspaces. Yeah. And that requires a little bit of a different mindset rather than going, well, all I'm doing is Class A and I don't have to worry about anything else. I've just got to separate the airplanes and I'm doing just radar control and that's it. Okay. And we, so. lo- we, lost, we, lost two, we lost two out of the 12 in the college. And so we got 10 out of the 12 through, which is, which is that's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. yeah that, I guess the polite way of looking at that is that that's an indication they selected correctly. You know, they had a good selection process to weed out the people who would have dropped out earlier, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think it's a pretty extensive selection process. And we didn't mention it earlier, but after all that testing, you've, uh, you go and sweat and they make you sweat for a couple of months. And then uh, if you get through the, you, the interview, you've got to do a, breha- a behavioral sort of, you know, mumbo jumbo psycho <laughs> test yeah. at the end as well the so. panel <laughs> yeah so yeah i think i think one of the yeah. things i failed on the panel was when they uh they said oh you know you you you're out at a party and there's an older traffic controller there who's, who's having a few drinks and you know what do you do and i'm like oh, i confront him and so he says and they say yeah he says shut up and then you see him at work the next day and and i was like oh, i'd have a chat try and work him i should have just said i'd kick his ass you know <laughs> 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 i'd report his bl- drinking report him know, for damn testing yeah damn yeah. <laughs> <Tamp> straight <laughs> that's what i should have bloody said yeah i think on my panel i had there was one the one one hr uh, person and then there were two experienced controllers and they all sort of took turns um asking questions and a lot of them were really hard to answer especially being only i think i was 23 at the time is that a lot of the questions were based on you know tell us a time that you improved your efficiency in the workplace and all this stuff yeah. and you've only, you haven't really done a lot of work but you just sort of answer them the best you can and you seem to make it's it all right but it's a standard one in every job these days and i think i got asked that to be to get my job <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, railways are not a mutually exclusive terms. So I don't even know what they ask. But it made it made for an interesting time in the selection. But uh, I guess that's getting you used to the stress that you're going to face going through the training because it sounds like a pretty intense time. There's um, so you're doing lots of study there. There was lots of hitting the books mm. and memorization and things like that, and learning lots of lists, lots and lots of lists of things, and like. We basically learnt all the documents from cover to cover. I mean, of course, a lot of it sort of melds away into the detail and stuff after a while, but we sort of all knew it at one stage, <laughs> all the 
content. So, or are you going to have to do refreshes before you go back to managing those procedures you've not used for a while, or what's the process there? Oh well, a lot of the, like once you get out of the college, you get assigned to a group, and it's certain airspace. So the group I'm on uh, doesn't have procedural control, so I only have to really worry about a thousand feet and five miles. So um, I've forgotten all the procedural stuff, and I don't need to know it because I don't need it to to use a rating. But Ben, he's sort of got to know procedural control and radar control for his sector because it's got a, a bit of both. So and you have tests, you have a theory test uh, that you have to pass every is it six to twelve months, Ben, in out in the real world? It's uh, every twelve. Your rating paper is every twelve. Like so, so you, um, yeah, yeah, yeah no, you've, got, you've got to get asking random questions out of a pool of questions, and you know this this is probably going to come as a surprise to people, but you know we don't know everything about the job. I mean, there's literally thousands of pages of stuff that you give reference, and I mean we've got some some stuff actually on the stuck to the the console itself that you use. You know, common things like um, a really confusing thing for for my group as far as coming from Tassie. There's actually about uh, four, five different stars you can get depending on the runway configuration in Melbourne. Okay. So we've actually yep. got a, a little cheat sheet that says there are just this is the runway configuration, this is the runway you give the aircraft. Because trying to memorise that sort of stuff just you know <laughs> does your head in. And it, well, it's hard to remember it all being new too. And then if you mess it up, it becomes a big deal later yep. on. That you know if if an aircraft gets you know through and <laughs> the, expects the wrong runway and the TMA says um you know what are you what are you talking about? We're not <laughs> using approach call you and say why is he going left? He should be going right. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that's a career-limiting move. <laughs> that's not... Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there's there's a limit to how much... And there's, there's some things that we don't use very often. I mean, I've got... At the bottom of Tasmania, there is a little chunk of oceanic airspace that doesn't get used very often, but oceanic areas have completely different separations there to what we can use domestically. They're yeah. larger again. So, I mean, yeah, was... there's times that you sort of have an aeroplane in there and, and you know, it's not conforming to what you know you can use definitely. So you go, well, hang on a second, I want to try and do this and I think I've got a standard there, but you go and double check it or, you know, a lot of the things we do check up on is... Uh, you know, things like aerodromes and you get a no-tam out saying, oh, you know, the runway's, you know, soft, so that can't be used. So you've got to flick through Ursa and go, well, is there another runway there that, or is the aerodrome closed and, and things like that. Okay. That's sort of so, we, we look up. Just explained what the Ursa is. It's the uh, in-route supplement Australia. It's, uh, we had we had uh, some feedback from some people overseas just wanting to know what the local jargon was. So. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Explain something. Yeah, we've got an accent for just about everything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ursa, Ursa what is, is the book. Yeah. And then you've got DAP, uh, Departure and Approach Procedures. And you've got AIP, which, uh, what does that stand for? Aeronautical oh, no, Information, isn't it? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, publication. Yeah, that's the one. That's it. You can get most of this online too. The Ursa's online, the AIP's online. I think the DAP is as well, isn't it? Through Air Services? Yeah, it's all, it's all, most of that stuff's on the Air Services website. So, yeah. Mm. But the only thing you can't get, I think, is. Uh, the Manual of Air Traffic Services, which is what, that's uh, our Bible as far as, you know, separation standards and things like that. Yeah. So you were talking before about certain areas having different types of requirements as far as uh, your skills manage- your skills maintenance goes. According to the Air Services Australia website that I'm looking at here, there's three types of controllers, those being uh, in-route controllers, terminal area controllers and tower controllers. Do you 
um, get the option to specialise in any of those groups, or is it basically all of you all have to have a basic overview of all three? Yeah, um, basically when you apply, or was when we started, you basically chose, do you want to be a tower controller or an on-route controller? They used to allow people to start um, approach first up, but there was a high attrition rate associated with that, just based on the complexity of the role. You sort of running aircraft a lot tighter. So um, I, I preferenced um, en route as number one, I think. And you basically say, well, do you want to work at Melbourne Centre or Brisbane Centre? And you ba- most people get what they want. I'm pretty sure a lot of people can swap. And yeah, you most people start out en route and they sort of have their their happy days retiring in a nice, quiet, you know, tower like Launceston, which is where I'd like to end up one day, where it's nice and quiet. Well, relatively speaking, and then no offense to can, Tasmania. <laughs> hey, I'm from Tasmania. It's great. Um, but uh, and then people can end up uh, on approach once they've got their skills up. Like depending on the airspace you worked in, if you work sort of radar, high volume radar sectors, you can sort of go and do a short course in in approach, and then you sort of finish up there. It's sort of seen as a as a slightly more prestigious role, certainly within controlling. Okay. And the, okay, so you, the terminal area controllers, um, it's a little bit confusing the way they've worded it here on the website, saying that <laughs> it's provided for Melbourne and, and Brisbane centres, terminal control units in Cairns, Sydney, Adelaide and Perth. So where exactly are okay. Well, certainly in Melbourne, we've got um, Melbourne Approach in the on, en route uh, room, and we've got Canberra Approach. And uh, what's Brisbane got? They've got... Um, they've, they've got Gold Coast. Um, so there's two in the en route centres. We do our own like uh, our terminal control area for the local airport is there as well so being Melbourne and, and Brisbane respectively and then both centres have actually got a um, what they call a remote terminal area control as well so we Melbourne has Canberra approach done from Melbourne and Brisbane they do Gold Coast which I mean doesn't sound like much but it isn't exactly right there so I mean it's Gold a Coast busy is airport, a lot closer than Canberra though. you'd have a lot of um, flying around there as well as the uh, you know the, the passenger aircraft yeah, 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 and yeah. that's that's the reason that they don't have Gold Coast and Brisbane Approach in two separate rooms because they're obviously because they're right next to each other they have to have a lot of synergy between the two anyway and it's, and a, it's a lot easier sitting in the same room. You've, you've got um, Sydney Approach which is done from they've got a little um, building there at Sydney Airport they do the whole sort of TCU area which is you know covers um, Camden and uh, Bankstown and Sydney and then Perth has got their own unit locally as well so it just varies depending on which I mean they don't need to be physically located at the airport but I think lifestyle reasons make it more you know suitable some people don't want to work in a big en route centre room because they are quite large so I think uh, yeah they haven't they haven't moved the other ones in yet Canberra came down to to Melbourne with the advent of um, of going to the um, the TATS system and that's the air traffic control system we use now the computerized one which is based on Eurocat which is what they use in Europe and a lot of other countries so the yeah. um, when when we did that we actually brought a lot of the centers came over as well because a lot of the um, what the Perth sectors were done in Perth and now obviously with all the the technological advances that we've got now with um, you know, optic fiber and and satellite links and things like that we can do a lot of this a lot of stuff remotely now um, and they haven't they haven't moved Perth over uh, Perth, Adelaide, and Cairns. Darwin. Darwin's, Darwin's done case. by the RAF. Yeah, I was yeah, going to ask Darwin's about that. Darwin's a different case because uh, that's actually done by the RAFIs, as is Townsville. Um, but Cairns is done up there as well. So the ones that are listed separately from the two centres are actually done um, locally, which, I mean, in the case of Perth, actually makes a bit more sense too because the time difference, especially at this time of year. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they're sort of going, coming in. I mean, we've got the guys 
here who do what we call the Perth radar sectors, which is within about 200 miles of Perth. And, I mean, they they sort of come into work at about 9 o'clock in the morning these, this time of year because there's not terribly much happening before then. <laughs> For, yeah. for their their morning shift to sort of do, so they they actually have the bulk of their their staff on as far okay. as numbers is is later during the day, obviously because they get their peaks a lot later in the traffic. Yeah, because yeah, no. their their peak will be seven o'clock in the morning, but that this time of year is because it's three hour time difference. That, that happens at ten a.m. here. Yeah. So is there more competition for certain types of jobs in the industry than others? So, for instance, you know, more people chasing those nice jobs at uh, some of the quieter towers or, you know, there's some... Yeah, everyone sort of jokes about wanting to go to Essendon Tower because it seems to be quite a cushy job, so everyone's trying to get from there. <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the guys are trying to go to... Ta- you know, if you're going to go to a tower, you want to go to a tower that, because you're coming from the experience side of it. You want to go to a tower that doesn't do night shifts. So, <laughs> so everyone's looking at the... The list of who closes overnight, so you, you go through that list. <laughs> That's why Lonnie's the, good. The, the Brisbane guys, Maruchi Tower has a has a waiting list that's probably I think it's about ten years long at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that that has to do with the beach too. Yeah, yeah, because you know you don't have to work nights, and you're at Maruchi when you're not at work. So <laughs> the guys at Essendon are really cool. Uh, being in the ballooning crowd, oh, even though I'm crew, I know the a few of the um, Essendon guys, and I get to listen to them when uh, we're out flying and all that kind of stuff. And they're a pretty fun bunch. I know the guys at Mar- Rabin used to be, I haven't flown there lately, but they were all pretty cool as well. Knew what the hell they were on about and sort of enjoyed their work too. Tower controllers come across as probably slightly less stressed because they're probably a little bit more satisfied with their working hours. Well, they're actually also able to actually see what's happening. You're not somewhere in a cab watching a screen, which I know from the ballooning perspective, we've got our transponders. We're just a dot on the radar where it's Fesson and Towers managing us, which is what happens if it's a nice clear day across the whole of Melbourne. They can actually see us. They've got the binoculars out. They're going, yeah, 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 you guys are cool. We'll route everyone around you. No problems for us. <laughs> Melbourne approach. We're just a dot on the radar, and they've got they they get pretty paranoid about the um, they they can't just say like oh yeah just dodge that balloon okay you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. required because you get that the Essendon guys will be like oh yeah just caution the balloons on approach yeah yeah we've got them we'll we'll dodge them you know yep tower controlling is a lot of black magic definitely yeah the uh, scrapping of the gap procedures uh, is there a lot of talk around in around the industry you know of what sort of implications that might have for you guys yeah there's a, there's a there's a bit of talk and certainly. Um, it'll make a huge difference in Sydney with um, Bankstown and, and Camden and how, how it will sort of pan out. And I think Air Services at the moment is coming up with a, a plan and a strategy to transition to Class D. But sort of we're not we're not talking about it a lot where I am anyway because it's too far in the future at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, my airspace we don't actually. I mean, my airspace stops at 100 miles of Adelaide and 100 miles from Melbourne, so it doesn't affect us too bad. But from a a, a pilot's perspective, though, I've I've actually heard a few stories especially Bankstown it, it's going to get uh, interesting to say the least <laughs> just as far as because because of the, the, the limits that CASA has, has put on them that it's it's effectively just pushed the traffic out to the reporting points and in yeah. the case of Bankstown obviously that makes it a pretty big problem because there's only two of them to start with and, yeah. and the big when, you, when you're funneling everybody to two different points in space you know the big sky theory doesn't work so well yeah no we were talking about that one with Owen's up back a few episodes and uh, yeah he it's just the whole concept that uh, that 
the reporting points are already where you've where Sydney's had a couple of air to airs, and now you're pushing more there, and not a good look. So it'll be interesting to see how that one pans but, out. And my, my airspace is um right. Well, my airspace is above Sydney and south of it, down all the way down to Canberra, and we, we can see it every day. All the VFR traffic in the Sydney TC area, and there's a there's a lot of aircraft there, and obviously a lot of jet traffic going into Sydney, and occasionally they have VFR aircraft um heading for Bankstown that uh, sort of get stuck on top of cloud and they can't get down, and they cause is a, a few headaches because they need a clearance to enter um, Class Charlie airspace but I think yeah. um, we'll just have to wait and see how it pans out. Yeah, indeed. One appropriate that was in the report that they, they're looking into is actually creating more reporting points for Bankstown. Well, I had to yeah, isn't it that you can basically turn up at a, at a, at a reporting point, like for instance, um, you know, near me is a reporting point GMH. Uh, you know, you basically turn up, tell Marabin Tower that, uh, you know, here I am at GMH, I'm at 1,500, I'm in band and I've got whatever the ATIS happens to be at the time and he'll, mm. he'll he'll basically say okay well you know you track via parkmore or something like that yeah and he'll work you into the pattern once he can see you now you know the way i understand it is once it's class d airspace they'll basically have to get to the reporting point and ask for permission to come in yep that's right they'll need a clearance so it might cause a bit of congestion and we'll have to wait and see but i think the the aircraft will have to be sort of more more aware of their, their airspace i know a lot of the vfr traffic they're Pretty pretty savvy with their airspace. They probably know it better than the uh, the RPT pilots. Like I often wonder if they're aware of what class of airspace they're in half the time. But I think uh, it'll just require a bit more uh, airmanship on the part of these pilots. But obviously it's a bit hard when you're learning to fly, worrying about necessarily the the layout of the uh, of the airspace. Yeah, I think probably it'll be a in you know in the fullness of time it'll probably be a, a positive thing in terms of safety. But I, it is going to take quite a quite an amount of time I think for people to adjust, particularly for pilots who've been using these procedures for a very long time. To all of a sudden, you know, what do you mean I need permission to come in here all of a sudden? You know, don't forget with RPTs, guys. RPTs, there's two types of airspace: my airspace and everyone else's. <laughs> you're either in my space or you're not, and here I come, guys, out of the way. Yeah, uh, yeah that's yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I think. I think from memory, um, when we went to class uh, E airspace, everyone it was you know this big new thing. And when it first came out, they um, I think they had a couple of sort of dicey uh, incidents in its infancy, and they sort of caused a little bit of concern. But once sort of everyone got into it, it, it seemed to work quite well. Though um, I don't think a lot of people are huge fans fans of. Uh, Class E airspace, but um, it seems to work reasonably well for the most part. But um, initially, it was a little bit of a struggle for a few of the operators. Now, a quick question on the classes, just especially for our, our listeners overseas: Are we aligned with the ICAO classes? Uh, because I know the US is not 100% aligned with their classes. They talk like they are, but they're not, are they? For instance, we don't have a class Bravo here. No, we don't use that. No, um, no it's very similar to class have, A. Though. Uh, it is uh, ICAO airspace except for the gap. The gap is our only exception to the rule thus far. Um, there was, when the, the um, they were switching over to the NAS system, there was a lot of uh, talk of actually making a couple of airports. Um, they were talking, I think it was Sydney was definitely one of them, and I think the other one was Melbourne or Brisbane, um, as far as actually making them Class Bravo airspace as well, or putting a, a segment of Class Bravo into that. But um, one thing that I've had it pointed out to me before I was even a controller, is that the way Australian air traffic control works is we tend to uh, over-service our classes of airspace. You know, as, as far as in Class C airspace, we don't, you know, technically have to keep the VFR aircraft apart. We don't have to provide a separation standard. We just provide them traffic. But, of course, you know, there's, there's no air traffic controller that's going to just, you know, 
actually mm. have nothing in place between two aeroplanes that are flying <laughs> in his airspace because, you know, in, in the subsequent court of inquiry, <laughs> it's not going to look terribly well, <laughs> terribly good. It's a little bit, it's a little bit counterintuitive. Uh, you're separating VFR from IFR in Class C, but then you're not separating the VFR from the VFR, so it's a little bit, it's sort of messes with your mind a little bit. Okay, do we do we have the same kind of thing as the Yanks do with flight following? We do have flight following, uh, a RIS service, radar information service. And that applies to Class E and G airspace. Okay. And you can basically call up and hopefully you've got a plan in the system because it makes life a little bit easier for us. <laughs> and we give you a code and we give you the traffic and away you go. But um, usually they ask for it at the worst possible time. <laughs> I first come back here from the US and, of course, you can get radar flight following pretty well from any centre over there if, you, you know, if they're not too busy and you ask them for it. You know, it's, it's a good thing for them if they know what mm. they're doing. And I remember, Gen- I remember coming back here and doing a flight uh, from Bendigo back to Moorabbin and uh, basically calling up Melbourne uh, Melbourne Control, as it was then, and asking for in route flight. And the guy's like, you want to do what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, know, I know in the States it's get, apparently getting a little harder because they're getting a little more stressed there. They don't have quite as much time to do it. Yeah, so a few folks are finding that over there, apparently. The, the way it was taught to us was in the colleges you've got to have a pretty good reason to knock it back and generally speaking most pilots ask for it when the weather conditions aren't the greatest and we try and provide the service where we can and you know if we can't we'll hand you off to the next sector maybe they'll be able to they'll be able to take you or at the very least give you a snapshot service of you know what traffic is around you but we generally try and provide it where we can and i don't get a lot of requests for them i don't know what ben gets a lot but we don't get a lot i don't tend to get a lot because by the time they get to me they're sort of running out of radar coverage anyway um <laughs> by the time you get to 100 miles melbourne they're, they're sort of you know at the lower levels at you know five six thousand feet you're sort of starting to run out of radar coverage out there anyway so um, <laughs> but the good the, you know, the they, good thing they, about they tend to fall off the radar out there the good thing about that the service is you're entitled to a fizz a flight information service so if you're going to your destination is um camden or whatever an amended taf comes out um you should be told about it so you get told about conditions that change in um the airspace you know oh there's a temporary restricted area or there's a hazard here you get you get sort of a lot more information than you would just flying along willy-nilly vfr sort of unknown to everyone so there are definite uh, benefits to it okay yeah i mean another thing too that we do do slightly differently to the u.s is that um, unless it's changed is that they have the flight service system going so you you can get all your weather and everything from them whereas uh, in Australia that's been put onto the air traffic controllers now as part of our function so we're giving the weathers out and things like that which you know can impact on your ability to provide your flight following and things like that Um, I think a lot of those flight service stations have been closed down in the US now from from what I hear from the guys over at Uncontrolled Airspace they're always talking about that I'm pretty sure it's the flight service stations a lot of them have been shut down or I think they might have even been privatised maybe some of our friends in the US could let us know about that yeah Lockheed Martin took over a whole lot of them and they're trying to centralise them down to just a couple to cover the whole of the US which Given that the, the in the states you you talk to a briefer before you go, whereas over here you got to do all your own self briefing. You you go and look at the maps and figure it all out yourself. Over there they they get to call someone and have a chat, which is is really kind of handy when anything goes wrong. You can say, well, I spoke to a briefer, pull the tapes. So yeah, they, they were complaining. A big part of it was that you lost the local knowledge. You lost the people who were in that area who's who'd grown up there. Who went, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what the Met's saying. But because the weather's going like this, and you got that, and that wind's going to kick in in the Arvo. Trust me, this is the situation. You know that kind of thing. And they're they're doing a centralisation over there. So that's that's the whole thing with the flight service centres. Mm. Yeah. Well, that actually happened 
That, but that would have been a long time ago in Australia when that happened, when we actually lost flight service as a separate function. Yeah. And air traffic controllers took on the Class G airspace and flight service went to Brisbane with uh, all the briefing office and everything like that. So, that, I mean, that would have happened well, nearly 20 years ago now. Yeah. Here, so and now they've actually got... They're trying to dial down the, the flight service on VHF, they they still do all the HF monitoring for us, which is yep. a good thing because I've, I've heard HF and I, and I don't be listening to that. Suddenly it makes digital um, mobile phones sound so much better, doesn't it? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, Veggie, the uh, the HF's pretty interesting there, but uh, you were saying before you were, you were doing a bit of oceanic down the south, don't you need HF for that? The benefit of having an intercom panel that goes across the world <laughs> we okay. actually give we give them to HF and then if the aircraft asks for anything, Brisbane actually comes back to us. Um, okay. We still retain, and uh, it's the same for our, our groups that do oceanic control, which I've got two that border my airspace to the south to do the Southern Ocean and the Tasman Sea, which is actually done from... Uh, it's a Brisbane control sector anyway, but the controller actually sits... The executive controller actually sits there and um, it does all the control functions, but they don't actually physically talk to the aircraft. They are either doing it uh, via HF, which is you, we relay that to uh, the HF yeah. operator, or we do it via uh, CPDLC, which is the data link. Okay, so so it does extend across the whole board. Okay, I just wasn't sure if that uh, using the others for HF applied mostly for other areas as opposed to the full oceanic. So the oceanic has has very. You, you were talking before about pilots self managing their position, and then you've got to pr- uh, separate them sans radar and so on. But uh, I've heard that um, oceanic can be quite technically demanding in terms of really maintaining that situational awareness much different procedures uh, especially going between uh, north america and europe and to a lesser degree over the pacific so do you guys have to know about that do you touch that in training we touch on it in training but uh unless you actually go to that group when you when you graduate you'll get a lot more training on the okay. on the system and how it works when you graduate there's um i'm thinking how many co- there's a I think it was a course behind us. Somebody's gone to to the what they call the West Procedural Group, and part of their airspace is the Indian Ocean. So they they do a lot of that, but they they've got a specific part of their their training for the group that is based on okay, you know, here's your oceanic standards and dealing with because um, they have to deal with all the bordering uh, FIRs as well. Yeah. Um, whereas I've only got. Brisbane next door to me, which I mean, it's a separate FIR, but it's still you're talking to you know an Australian, so it's not much what, different. What did FIR stand for? That's the different flight information regions. So your, okay. your different centres in the US are all different flight information regions, okay. yeah. and we've only got two in Australia. So that's you got your Brisbane and Melbourne, but um, the the West Procedural guys, because they've got the Indian Ocean, I think they border on about five or six. <laughs> different international FIRs and you know so they've they've got uh, Johannesburg on one side of it and going all the way through Southeast Asia through to Jakarta and Mauritius uh, and Mauritius and and of course you know then they've got to also deal with the intricacies of you know dealing with the uh, the communication lines to you know an international country to start with which sometimes aren't the best yeah for the comms link and and they've also got you know the, the accent issues and things like that so you've, you've got to be very clear with with what you're saying and what you're dealing with because if you don't get the message 
either a cross right or received right, then yeah. you've got a different picture that you're looking at to what they're looking at. Yeah, no, I get, I get what you're saying. That makes it a little bit more interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, it's the situational awareness is a lot easier in the procedural environment than it used to be when they had strips and yeah. and things like that. So you had to, you know, physically actually, you know, look at the strips and the piece of paper and try and translate that in your brain to, you know, get a mental map of where everybody actually is. That's all done by the computer now. So you do get a position symbol that's in give or take the right place. Yeah. But of course... If you don't, you know, it's like any computer system, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> so if you don't put the right thing in there from your coordination from an international sector, it, you get the wrong picture and, you know, it's it's yeah. happened. It's, it I actually happened. remember when I did Famil on West Procedural, I came in and they had one aircraft coming in from the Indian Ocean and he said, you see this guy here? And he was way out. I said, oh, yeah. And he goes, um, yeah, he was supposed to be about 100 miles north of that position. So the information he got from, you know, overseas uh, FIR wasn't 100% accurate, but luckily now there's not a lot of aircraft out there. So sometimes communication does break down. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, they do a lot of different things like that. And they, they do a lot of work with data link and things like that. I mean, I had a, a data link error message come up the other day and I actually called the next sector that with this aircraft was going into, which was one of the, the West Procedural Groups. And I actually called them and said, yeah, how, how do you actually get rid of this message? <laughs> <laughs> because they, they they deal with it every day, whereas you know I deal yeah. with it you know, maybe once every six months. So they, they didn't cover that in the sim. Well, it's it's hard to cover everything in the simulator, especially you know like we probably did cover it in the simulator, but because I haven't used it in the three months since, yeah, it's just not you know at the top of your head there. So okay. Well, heck, we've been asked to say something good about the podcast down under. Does anybody have anything? No, let's talk about our own podcast instead. You mean the Airplane Geeks? The Airplane Geeks podcast. You mean the the people that taught the people down under how to do it? You mean the people who speak normally? That's right. And where can people find the Airplane Geeks podcast? That would be www.airplanegeeks.com. And we know how to take care of our friends. We don't let people train us and then just kind of try to one-up them with a better podcast. We don't do that. We're staying at our mediocre level. That's right. We We know our place in the world. (laughs) Long live mediocrity. That's right. At PCDU, we actively encourage participation from our audience. To leave a comment or suggestion, or for further information on how you can support the podcast, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. Yeah, we've touched a little bit of mentioned simulator and all that, but what was the simulator actually like? You, you've told me offline when we've chatted before about going into the sim and, and really knuckling down into and pretending that, you know, like simulating you're really in the world there. and The room and class goes in, class comes out, that kind of thing. What's it like? The one in the, the sim in the college is um, just a room with all these, um, they're just PCs lined up, but they're sort of set up like the display. If you've seen on the Air Services website, you've got sort of your main uh, display and then you've got a couple of other screens. One is just a secondary window where all, all 
all your strips generally are. And the other side is your VCS, your voice switching. So that's all your lines, your your, your data lines to all the other controllers and, and sectors. Mm-hmm. And so generally uh, in the college, their, their sim airspace is fictitious and you've got two sectors that, you know, are next to each other. So there's a bit of interaction between you and the other controller. And so there's a bit, so it makes it a little bit more, there's the complexity is a little bit higher than what it would be if it was one sector. Okay. But over in the field, once you finish in the college, that you do a sim course for the, the, the sector or sectors that you will work on. And that's just obviously the real deal with just the one sector. And you'll often have, I had a one stage three blippies going and just playing the pilots. So that sort of added to the complexity. But certainly... Um, the sim would get would feel realistic especially when you're in there you're just thinking about oh how can i get this guy up how can i get that guy down is that sequence going to work like you do sort of get into it it does feel kind of real and even plugged in with real traffic it's it's still it's still the same feel slightly different like you know the voices are different but it's the same principle like the sims do a pretty good job of simulating i think they, they are very, yeah, pretty close to the real thing i mean that the college simulator at, at the moment is, is a pc-based simulation okay. so um it's not quite as you know high fidelity of course it yeah consequently on the same on the same note it, it doesn't have quite the same price tag either so, <laughs> <laughs> but um they are in the process of getting a, a full um eurocat simulator as well so that will actually you know i mean we we had to do a one-week conversion course because there's some things that the pc sim does a little bit differently to the real world the uh, the actual operational simulator that we use in the center is actually part of the center itself it just lives on its own network and mm-hmm. it actually has the ability that um you know in a in a disaster scenario that we can actually plug the simulator into the real world and, wow. and, use, and use those consoles if the need so arises. Well, for, okay. the, for the Sydney Sydney Olympics, the 2000 Olympics, I think they had a contingency for if something happened to the Sydney TCU, which is in Sydney Airport, that they would use the Melbourne simulator, like they sort of had all the procedures set up ready to go just in case. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, the, the simulator's it's very close. I mean, I don't know about Jeremy, for myself, it's it's very close, but you still have the thing in the back of your head that they're computer blips that you're dealing with mm. and everything like that, and then you get out, you graduate, you graduate from your sim course and you get signed off to go and train on live traffic and the first time you have to talk to a real airplane there's this thing in the back of your head going oh dear this is a real airplane now <laughs> this is kind of this is kind of terrifying let me practice it over in my head 10 times there we go okay don't stuff it up don't stuff it up <laughs> and, and in the sim too they, they they turn a lot tighter and they get their speeds up or down a lot quicker in the real world like the rpts when they're going eco speed and stuff they do oh, okay i'm going to do a half rate one turn i'm not you know i got a i got a the bottom line to protect and got to keep the passengers happy but you know in the sim it's just rip them around and get it done <laughs> yeah stuff the yeah. fact <laughs> so i mean yeah in the sim you sort of get comfortable with running everything a certain way and then you come out into the real world and your uh, your tolerances for what you think is running it tight go become quite a lot mm. wider than, than what they should be but um you know that's just it's your natural reaction to going yeah, this this is real and you know even though your, your training officer sitting right there is obviously not going to mm. let anything happen but you've still got the thing in the back of your head going you know i don't want to do anything wrong <laughs> I, I remember one of the one of the first times i was plugged in real world i was actually plugged in it was um it was an it was an afternoon it was pretty busy and we have a lot of interaction with sydney departures for all the traffic going down to melbourne and and Canberra and Avalon and sometimes they'll, they'll ding the line and they speak really quickly it's like and if you're not expecting what they're going to say you sort of got to anticipate what's going to happen so oh, okay I see that aircraft there usually they ask for direct Malakuta because that shortens up the Tassie jets and they, they he said it really quickly I'm like oh, I'll say again so just you know and they went oh okay I 
must be a trainee he's on, so they speak slower. <laughs> and word gets out, and everyone sort of you know absorbs that. And they get they get used to that. But if if you if you can anticipate what they're going to say, it makes life a lot easier. But in the sim, you just can't simulate that sort of environment. Yeah. <laughs> so I just I just like when the when I was first hearing about the sim, it's like you imagine something like out of Star Trek, you know, where where they go in and they're doing the simulation of the Kobayashi Maru scenario, and it's like yeah, all the, all the consoles everywhere. At some point, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it sounds really cool. It, it, I mean, you know, just simulating everything and being able to use the consoles if rea- in reality, if there's any problems, and having them hooked up to mm. the games, that's all wow stuff. And and then yeah, now you're you're talking about getting back into reality, and and that's, that's something I definitely want to hear about. Is is you know, what was it like? when you first went into the real world and you, you, you sort of indicated there that it was uh, it was terrifying yeah you got the in the back of your terrifying it's good in the back of your head <laughs> oh my god this is real oh my god but how, how long are you there with somebody watching over your shoulder it, depend, it depends on the uh, the sectors um, I think uh, well, it depends on the number of sectors you're doing and you've got to get signed off and do all your checks and stuff but on my group that's supposed to be six weeks on the job training you basically you're assigned one person who sits behind you so they can sort of see trends developing what's wrong with you and then um you'll have a progress check with the checkie yep. the people that sign you off to see okay this person's ready to go and have a final check so we'll go and sign them in so generally for us it's six weeks some um, some groups it could be longer than that two months i don't know what ben's was he was probably about six weeks yeah i'm about 40 <laughs> oh because the, the way they, they write they write it in you know different formats for each different group so okay. but ours it ended up being about eight eight weeks or so because I, I ended up with a couple more sectors because i get i get uh three endorsements to start with so there's some of the oceanic guys i think um because one of the guys in the in a course after ours actually he went to to uh, west procedural and because they do the oceanic and everything like that and there's there's is nearly three months worth of training just purely because of the complexity of what they've got to learn and and things like that yeah wow sounds like there's like an ongoing sort of mentoring process that they have there with the more senior guys you know the people you can go to if you need clarification on something yeah every, everyone's got um, different opinions on how things are, are done there's there's safe ways of doing things and then there's different techniques and different ways you can go about you know solving a different situation and generally speaking you sort of learn the way your on the job trainer does it and that's your way and you sort of you just find a safe way and you know it may not be the most efficient way but you know and as you gain more experience you sort of learn easier ways to deal with situations and to resolve things I don't know if we told you but you finish the college and then you have you do your sim course for the sector you do a check for that and you get signed off and then that's so basically that check determines okay this person's ready to go out in the field and and talk to real aircraft so you've got some idea of what's going on essentially so just to add that in just to make that clear i don't think we said that so and it's a it's a pretty big jump between each level too so i mean you you come out of the college and you do know a hell of a lot more than what you did when you started of course but there's there's a big jump into what you do as far as jumping into the operational sim i mean and and that half of that i think is is tempo too because at the academy you've got you know the simulators there but it's being used by five different classes so there's a limitation of how many people you can put into the thing at once whereas in the operational sim when you get your sim time there you know they, they actually let you into the sim based on the course itself and with the way the college runs the simulator which is works well for for what they do there you're doing you know two sim runs a day maybe mm-hmm. yeah one, one to two sim sim well it's two sim runs a day that you're doing there and when you go to the operational simulator you, you're stepping that up so instead of 
of doing you know two 45 minute runs you you when you're doing you know three four five if you can squeeze it in okay. sim runs a day so it, there's a lot more going on and you've also you've changed your airspace setup too from from when you were in in the academy so you're trying to learn new airspace new air routes and you know where the confliction points are and, and that's like that's that. what the sim's about really is learning what are the major conflictions for this airspace what have you what have we got to be aware of like you know there's not not everything's a trap and not every level request is a trap like it is in the sim but you get a general idea of okay normally we get these departures here like we get departures out of maria rex subs going up to sydney and then we get they usually want flight level 160 and out of sydney along the turboprop track that crosses it everyone comes out at flight level 160 so in the sim they'd hit every time but in the real world sometimes they get through without knowing but you have to be <laughs> sort of prepared to scan for it yeah it's, it's knowing where to, where to look i mean I've, I've got a similar one that out of out of hobart if you've got an, an aircraft going hobart through northbound up to sydney or brisbane and you've got an aircraft coming down from from sydney or, or brisbane particularly the sydney launceston aircraft and they cross at, at flinders island is where the two tracks cross and we've we've got a particular setup with the scheduling that the airlines are running at the moment where we've actually got two sydney jets coming through with a hobart and a launceston jet coming southbound down that from from that airspace at, the, at about the same time but the biggest problem is the hobart jet's not a, not a huge problem because he's up at a cruise level and he won't want descent until he's actually separated from the northbound guys anyway the problems with the launceston guy because Murphy's law says that they want to be at the same level in the same place at the same time but um, so you've, you've got to we that's that's half, half of what the simulator and, and you're really on the job training is is you know learning to where to look and you know okay I've got a guy coming out of here so he's actually going to cross these tracks here so I've got to actually look in in a certain spot to, to know where your traffic's going to come from mm. that could potentially conflict with this aircraft and that, that's all about that's all about scanning like if we have a thing where you you just basically you've got to learn your own way of scanning scanning the screen so I'm going to scan and see okay everyone's at different levels and you're going to scan and see what actions do I have outstanding do I need to coordinate communicate with someone you know do I need to distribute this so it's all about developing a scan that's sort of that sort of works for your airspace okay cool there's been a lot of talk around guys lately in the news about some proposals to uh, merge uh, the functions that you guys do at air services with the RAF guys now uh, we're not going to ask you to uh, commentate on the politics of that sort of stuff but the RAF guys in general, are they trained uh, in the same way as you guys? I guess they are, but um, what yeah. do they do that's different? Or do they do anything that's different? Um, I think generally speaking, the uh, RAF controllers, they sort of do an approach and tower course. They sort of do the whole all-in-one thing. They don't really have en route as such. They just have sort of radar approach. Um, our airspace abuts NARA's control zone, so we sort of interact with them on a daily basis. And our actual Bible, mats, it's actually um, used by the RAF as well so they they learn from the same books generally but they've got different procedures you know that we talked about before we started about um having the check your gears are locked and ready to go before you land so it's generally the same sort of system but just taught in a different sort of different light yeah they, they as far as i know they, they don't use our air traffic control system either like they don't they don't use the same system that we use to in, to interact with as far as the radar and all that they don't use tats they've got their own system which has its own sort of sets of differences but the basics they do the same and the only one major thing that they do differently is they learn how to bring airplanes together which is not, <laughs> not what we aim to do <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they run them pretty tight <laughs> but but they do a lot more work with 
formations and, and intercepts and things like that, obviously, because that's part of what they do that we, we don't have to do much with. So, I mean, we have formation fights come through, but they deal with it every day of the week and, and things like that. So so you don't have any of the RAF guys there? They don't have a presence at all uh, where you guys no. are? Right. That's interesting. Other, yeah. other than, I mean, there's probably somebody who's got an office there that, as far as procedures and things like that, are concerned um, like on, on a management level. Um, there's probably somebody there. I mean, we've got I've got East Sale next to my airspace, and um, yeah, we do have the occasional flight that comes out of there. We've got um, a lot of the stuff that they do do a lot of work over Bass Strait for, as part of their School of Air Navigation course. Right. Um, so we, we do do a fair bit of talking to them, but uh, they are uh, not in the same room as us. I think in Perth. They're actually in the same room. The the peers controllers now are, are in the same room as the Perth terminal controllers, right. which which they did just purely, I think, from a, a synergy point of view, because <laughs> Pierce and uh, Perth are so close together. You've got apparently. a lot of traffic all sort of packed into a relatively small area. And I think they sort of probably sort of found that they're on the line to each other, you know, all the time. And there's there's a lot of things that you, if because you're in the same room, you you get a, the lines are, are faster too. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're communicating with an off-site place, you've got to wait. You know, there's a bit of a lag in the system as far as they've got to answer the, the line and things like that. Mm-hmm. And and there's a, there's a few things too. There's a lot of things that you, you know, if, if you're physically sitting next to the person, you can look at their screen and see their traffic. And there's, while the, you know, you do have to coordinate things on the line, there's a lot of the, you know, ideas that you can come up with for solving a, a problem that you can discuss just as easily between the two of you and go, all right, well, you know, what if I do this with this guy rather than trying to discuss it on the line where you've got all the interruptions going? That's what, that's one of the things we probably haven't mentioned is a lot of what we do is behind the scenes. It's it's what we call coordination where you're pointing out to like the next control unit, okay, this guy's coming at this level, you know, and you negotiate, well, okay, he's going to want to send what level can I assign? Like you're sort of doing a lot of work. So often we'll get aircraft calling us, of course, because that's the way it goes and you miss it and you try and, okay, I'll try and get the call done. Then you go, you know, um, you know, apologies in with a ground station. Say again, sometimes you've just got to get cold done. It's actually a pretty big part of it, of what we do because it means our traffic, my traffic is coordinated, say, with Ben's traffic so that they're all separated. You know, there's no black hole between our two sectors. Okay. Hmm. Ooh, that's, that's one thing that a lot of pilots probably, I mean, and I myself didn't realise before. I mean, I was lucky I got um, through a friend who's also a controller, got to sit in with a, a real controller before I had my interview. But prior to that, I had no idea how just how much coordination goes on between yeah. the, the two sectors. And uh, it's... Yeah, there, there is a few rules about that as far as, you know, there's certain routes where you don't have to do any talking because, you know, there's an agreement that everything's going to come a certain way at a certain level or, or the level won't be changed within, you know, a certain distance so that you know that inside of that distance that's what you're going to get unless you hear it, hear it differently. And, and a lot of talking happens that, you know, like especially I've got the two in the Tassie sector that I do, I've got the two towers at Launceston and Hobart and I've got to tell them what's coming at 80 miles out and that's that's the limit i mean if they get inside of 80 miles then i'm in trouble so <laughs> gotta catch them before they get there yeah so i mean it's i'm you know the aircraft calls me when it hits bass straight pretty much at, at the start of at the top of bass straight and that's 
as, pretty much as soon as they've talked to me, I've already got an idea of, you know, the sequence I'm going to run into the tower and, and things like that. You know, if I've got an aircraft coming from Sydney and Melbourne at the same time, they're, they're going to be converging at the tower. So I've got to give the tower something to work with. And if you don't if you don't get cold done by the, the like the, the minimum distance or time, whatever it is, you can actually, you're supposed to be stood down for, for that. So that's just as important as maintaining separation. Wow. Yeah. Um, controllers actually get stood down more often for breakdowns of coordination than most other things. So uh, breakdowns of separation is what everybody hears about in the, in the paper, but uh, more, more controllers than that get stood down just purely because of breakdown of cohort that you didn't tell them that they were coming. So what, what happens on a stand down? Well, you get stood down and they, they pull they pull the tapes and assess, okay, what, what was said, what was done, what wasn't done. They sort of basically do an, an independent, you know, review of what's occurred. And often they'll stand people down, you know, just because sometimes you can have, say, aircraft bus levels and then, like, did they tell the aircraft to take that level or not? They stand you down because, you, you know, people can get quite emotional, understandably, over certain yeah. things. They'll check the tapes and go, oh, okay, you, you weren't at fault. You can go back to work. That's fine. Like, it's just, it's just a precaution, basically, you know, give the person a break. Get someone okay. in there because even if you weren't at fault, you can be distracted by it and think about it. Then another incident can occur that's probably more serious. So yeah, wow. Okay, so it's it's generally a stand down and a review and a bit of remedial yeah. if needed and things like that, and then back into the loop. Yeah, they'll, they'll certainly get to the bottom of, of whatever's happened. Yeah, they'll, they'll they'll work out what happened and and they'll come up with a plan from there. I mean, obviously, if there was no fault, you know, if it wasn't your fault, if the aircraft you know busted a level or whatever, mm. that's there's nothing you, you can do about that. So that's you know. They'll sort of tell you what happened and go, all right, well, you know, if you're happy, you can go back up, you know, on the, on the screen and, and things like that. But, you know, if it, if it was your fault, then they've got to look into, you know, well, why and, yeah. and, and you know, remedial training and things like that come into it from there. So The last question I've got is about the A380. Uh, it's new here in Australia. It's new all around the world, of course. But uh, there was concern when it was coming out that it would have to have its own class of uh, separation for wake turbulence and things like that. And yeah. uh, they thought they had it all nutted out and then... I think it was over Europe or Asia. There was a um, over the Middle East, rather. There was an A380, a thousand feet above another aircraft, and they thought that was fine. And the other aircraft below encountered wake turbulence from it. Can you guys comment on that? I'm I'm not familiar with that incident, but certainly a thousand feet um, separation is still used with the A380s. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know what what happened. What what sort of aircraft was it? I think it was an A320. Oh really? Okay. Oh, that's surprising. It wasn't a it wasn't a lighty. Yeah. And it was in cruise too. Yeah, well, because a thousand feet's a separation standard. If you're running them at the same level, you need um, six miles a heavy behind an A380, six miles a medium seven, and a light's eight. But a thousand feet is a separation standard. And yeah, I'm actually surprised that that that, that, that actually occurred. Okay. Um, I'm just doing a real quick look. Uh, while I'm doing that look, by the way, folks, I found that uh, air traffic control simulation game. It's at uh, www atc-sim.com so atc-sim.com and uh, yeah that's a great time absorbing system uh, it's great <laughs> can't beat the real thing though nah. yeah but for some of us who can't get into the real thing it's not bad <laughs> <laughs> it's a theoretical A380 question you know um, you know, perhaps the next time you're running it into 3-4 there at Melbourne if you could just put it a bit of a wider arc around the city if I gave you a little map of where I <laughs> And you just you see it off in the distance. You go, wow, that's a big aircraft, and it's just huge. You go, that must be the A380, but gee, it's an ugly aircraft, isn't it? That's the only one that I've seen so far is one that was static on the ground at Los Angeles when I was there a couple of months ago. <laughs> oh, okay. 
I remember the first time I saw one in the flesh, it was moving around Melbourne when they were doing the um, the route proving and, and the familiarization in the airport. And uh, yeah, the I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And then you suddenly realize, hang on, there's two rows of windows. And then you see it next to a 737 and go, oh, crap, it's huge. <laughs> you I, I actually had the uh, ability because of my former job throwing, uh, being a grand handler, throwing bags over at Melbourne that uh, I was on the day that the demonstrator came in, the Airbus demonstrator. Okay, yeah when it was doing its little Qantas promo tour there. And, um, yeah, there was quite quite a few people who had a, uh, a lawful reason to be airside that day, funnily enough. I do seem to remember the photos, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, with the thousands of people in the terminal pressed up on the glass and the uh, 400 <laughs> people that were out airside next to it. And, yep. uh, <laughs> it needs a lot I of... Was, <laughs> I was lucky enough to actually walk under it, under the demonstrator and things like that. And it's, it's, a, it's a very big aircraft, but it's, it's proportional. So it's it's not like you know you see an A three forty six hundred and you sort of go oh you know it's a very long aircraft or or the seven three is a very sort of short aircraft but this thing is just everything about it is huge. I actually had uh, the other day an A three eighty come out of Melbourne. He was playing Melbourne Sydney and the next controller caught up, did some cold and said oh he wants to do some aerial work over Canberra. I said oh what sort of aerial work? He goes oh he wants to intercept radials you know overhead Canberra in a hundred mile radius. And I thought, oh, that's not going to work at flight level 380. All the traffic coming out of Sydney, that's just not going to work. And he went and he came back to me and he said, oh, no, he's actually said he can go up to flight level 430. I said, no, he can do whatever he wants at flight level 430. That's <laughs> me. Tell the way of my traffic. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah. well, the, uh, the, the one thing I was going to say about the A380 is if you look at it from above or look at the plan form, that wing is so designed for stretching the fuselage. The body is quite short compared to the wing. And you know, it's quite clear that they're, they're getting that thing ready for some stretches i mean air france's one is coming out with uh, i think it's the first one flying with over 500 passengers isn't it they've, they've definitely got they've only got nine first class and uh, they've got over 440 economy and the rest is business so that's that's more than a 747 economy yeah i read i read that the other day yeah their economy class is actually more than the total on a, <laughs> uh, on, a on a regular 74400 so yeah it's yeah, pretty exactly. pretty impressive right there but i've actually a while ago i got an email one of those friends of friends of cc'd about 400 times emails but <laughs> <laughs> it's um it actually had the figures compared to um the email came from a, uh, a 747 first officer and he was there he was part of the group in their airline that ran the comparisons to to look at the a380 i mean they didn't end up going down that option but they were looking at it and the a380 was consistently two to four thousand feet above the 747 on the same route wow i mean that's how much more efficient that wing is yeah that, that's, over, that's, over the 747 that's also because it's just designed to lift more i mean it'll be interesting to see when the future one comes out that's stretched to carry more people how's it going to be yeah you know just to I mean? see see what that wing's actually capable of yeah yeah will it find that okay now suddenly it's uh, not quite so simple and and it's now back to being a seven you know because maybe it's the the wing to fuselage ratio the one thing that does scare me though is it's a performance category c aircraft and it's a very very big aircraft to be performance category c rather than the the, uh, the d yeah the, yep the seven four goes into the d category so it's it can go quite slow despite its uh, enormity yeah and it's pretty quiet coming over the top too so uh, just to sum up there guys um obviously you, you you're happy with your career one thing i didn't ask is how, how long have you both been doing this job well of course 
started uh, back in June 23rd of last year, wasn't it, Ben? Since then, pretty much. So not not that long. Not been that long since you came out of the academy. We did say that at the start. So um, obviously a, a long career uh, ahead of you. And um, I do I do note from the Air Services Australia website that they're actually advertising for uh, recruit courses for 2010. So uh, people that are listening who might be considering a career in, in air traffic control who you know either are now enthused from having listened to this podcast or are completely put off. <laughs> Check out the Australia website and uh, have a look at that, yeah. And and I'd say to whoever's applied or is about to apply, just to be patient with the whole process, it's obviously very time-consuming, but it's it's definitely worthwhile. Absolutely. It's, it's, it takes a long, long while, and um, I didn't get an interview slot the first time around as far as they've, they've only obviously got so many people that they can interview in one hit. And when I did the testing, I got through that and got the interview and didn't have a roster from where I was working at the time time to work out if I could actually get the time off to go, you know, which day I was going to go to this interview. And by the time I actually went into it, which only happened to be about, you know, 48 hours later, there was no interview slots left. So it actually took me about 18 months to get through the whole procedure. Don't know how long it took Jeremy to get through, but it, it does take a while, but it is, yeah, it's well worth it. Well, on that note, guys, we probably ought to wrap it up there. It's been a really interesting and fascinating discussion about uh, all aspects of air traffic control. And thank you very much for volunteering to become the Plane Crazy Down Under official air traffic control consultants from here on in. <laughs> Sucker. How much do we get paid? <laughs> Same uh, in Grant. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, pretty much about as much as we do, yeah. yeah anyway. A whole lot of kudos. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us, and we look forward to uh, talking to you guys in the future as well. Yep, we'll talk to you again in another episode hopefully very soon yep thanks thanks Thanks. guys wow that was a great discussion we uh, we really enjoyed doing that had a blast of a time there were stacks of outtakes there was lots of stuff that uh, wound up getting left on the edit floor i might just add there grant that ben and jeremy are sweating on those outtakes not seeing the light of day so (laughs) yeah there's some really great comments uh but unfortunately that was for the uh the post-production ears only but yeah it's it was a great session and, and we had a really good time but one of the best pieces that uh did come through from the uh, the outtakes and bits that weren't included in the main main discussion piece is actually the inspiration for the whole title and for our uh, teasers prior to this episode coming out where we were discussing showers. No, it's not talking about rain. It's not talking about being clean. It's talking about this. I had a couple of aircraft crossing overhead Sydney and I was thinking, considering my options about how to separate them, should I climb one? Should I turn one? You know, descend one? And my training officer turned to me and said, do whatever you want, but a rivet shower over Sydney is a bad thing. (laughs) Sorry about that, Jeremy. We had to put that one in, mate. Oh, totally. Should we tell him how many outtakes it took for him to get that spiel right, Grant? I think it was about four goes because he told it to us and we weren't recording at the time and we had we told him to record it again. And it, yeah, like MacArthur coming back again and again, it took a few goes. Yeah, that was gold, mate. Anyway, so uh, yeah, we we had a real we had a real blast talking to those two guys. And whether they like it or not, we we volunteered them on on behalf of the podcast audience to uh, answer any questions you might have on air traffic control. Oh, indeed, and and. We could have talked for hours longer. It was really great fun. They're a bunch of larrikins, and it's kind of scary to think that they're going to be controlling our uh, aircraft as we're flying around. But, hey, you know. Nah, it's cool, guys. Just stirring. <clears throat> yeah. Remember, if you hear my voice, be nice. Okay? Yeah. There you go. <laughs>
Anyway, folks, so that just about wraps it up for the episode this week. It's, uh, like we said, been a really fascinating one. Show notes can be found on our website at www.plancrazydownunder.com. If you'd like to send us some feedback, of course, our email address is plancrazydownunder at gmail.com. That's right. You can uh, also friend us on Facebook and find our fan page over there. You can follow us on Twitter as PCDU. And we've even got a YouTube channel, thanks to Steve and his wonderful video camera and tireless efforts to uh, help show that we can actually come out from being voices in your head and actually be seen dancing in front of your eyes. It's scary but true. Yeah, but don't worry too much, folks. We've taken great care not to videotape ourselves. <laughs> just videotape some aircraft. So, in fact, uh, I've just put some footage up of the roulettes that I took down at Point Cook on a recent visit to Gig and View My Blog, which is ozfly.com, and I've actually uh, put a little addition into that recently. You can check out Grant's blog, which is blog.flymefriendly.com. And I promise I will put something in that soon. I just have been flat out with my day job and PCDU stuff. Steve Vischer, or one word on Twitter, or Falcon124 on Twitter. So, until next week, folks, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, and in fact, if you're negotiating the Melbourne Centre controllers and are wondering just what the heck's going on, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.